podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. Today's podcast features Wendy John, Head of Global Diversity and Inclusion at Fidelity Investments. Wendy has been with Fidelity for 24 years and leads the effort to ensure that Fidelity is a workplace and service provider where everyone can fully be themselves. Born in Trinidad and Tobago, she moved to Canada after high school to attend the University of Waterloo to study actuarial science. Wendy also received a Master of Science in Investment Management from Boston University. Wendy, I'm so pleased to welcome you to the Strength in the Midst of Change podcast. Would you mind telling us a bit about yourself um, and the journey that brought you to Fidelity? Sure thing, and thank you so much for having me. Well, you shared a little bit about me in terms of, you know, growing up first in the Caribbean and then moving to North America after high school, first Canada and then to the U.S. And so I've now lived in the United States for over 25 years, which means it's longer than I spent in, you know, the place of birth. So, you know, that first explains, you know, myself as being an immigrant and also being someone of, you know, Afro-Caribbean descent, which really informs a lot of my personality. But that said, I mean, I'm someone who's had a passport since I think I was maybe three months or six months old. So I did a lot of traveling in my life, both as a young child with my family and also throughout my career. And so I feel like I, you know, live my life on a global level. I've always been fascinated and intellectually curious about the world and about people. So I joke that I am a bit of a social scientist at heart, although my love for math actually drew me first to the actuarial profession. And so, you know, that's a lot about sort of my career start. And I started there in terms of my response because it's really my actuarial interest and pursuit that brought me first to Fidelity. I actually moved to Boston after graduating from the University of Waterloo. I was recruited by a consulting firm to come to Boston. And the person who, you know, led that recruiting effort left the first consulting firm I was at and went to a smaller boutique firm. And he, you know, after a few months, he convinced me to follow him, which I did a few months later. And I arrived at work that day and he let me know that Fidelity was going to be my client. And, you know, I thought, okay, this is interesting because I had actually worked with Fidelity at my prior company. And unbeknownst to me, not only was Fidelity my client, but about three weeks later, they announced that the firm, the small consulting firm, was being acquired by Fidelity. And so my journey to Fidelity is, you know, I don't believe in true coincidences. I believe everything is fated. And so that's how I was brought to Fidelity. You know, I think on a personal note, I am the youngest in my family. I grew up in a nuclear family with my mother, my father, my older brother, and myself. I've always been a bit of a nerd (laughs) at heart uh, for my love of math. But I also relish and really enjoy the arts. And so 
I did ballet for almost 12 years of my life. I have loved music. My next door neighbor was a piano teacher. And my father, actually, he won a scholarship out of high school for languages. And so languages, and so primarily French, Spanish, and Latin, were languages and words that were thrown around my household as a young child. So that's Wendy sort of in a nutshell. <laughs> that's quite the journey. Um, impressive change right after joining an organization to have it bought out. Correct. Yeah. Can you share with us what your core responsibilities are as the head of global diversity and inclusion at Fidelity? Yes, absolutely. I'm going to start first with a little story. So I took on my role as the head of global diversity and inclusion at Fidelity last July, so July of 2020. And I was sitting in another role and the team that I led, one of my direct reports, her young daughter, who I believe was five or six at the time, and I had formed a bit of a bond. And not only was my associate sort of disappointed that I was moving into a new role and wouldn't be their manager anymore, but her daughter also was like, I heard that you have a new job. (laughs) And, you know, in the Zoom environment, in the pandemic, we've all gotten to know each other's families a little bit more intimately. Mm -hmm. And she wanted to know what my new job was. So, you know, sometimes it's simplest when you try to explain it to a child. And so what I said to her was, My job is to make sure that everyone feels safe and comfortable when they're at work to be able to do their best. Mm. And I think that really encapsulates it, you know, but to be more specific and speak more in a business perspective, I would say that I take great pride in, you know, helping Fidelity to create a culture of inclusion, really encouraging us to, you know, attract and retain a more diverse workforce that allows us to tap into the power of our differences to develop that talent so that everyone can be their best in the workplace and deliver their best on behalf of our customers. And then last but not least, you know, really showcase Fidelity's reputation and brand as an inclusive employer and service provider. I love that you brought in the story of how you explained it to a child, because that does help all of us. You know, I read a piece on LinkedIn that you had written titled A Memorial Day in Memoriam that provided your personal reflection about the George Floyd murder. Can you describe how the events of March 2020 impacted your decision to step into this new role? Absolutely. And it's a great question. Thank you for uh, taking a read of that piece. And unlike, you know, what many might think, those were my words written. And it was really important for me a year later to reflect on those events. If I think about where I was mentally, emotionally, and physically last year, Memorial Day weekend, like so many people, the reality was sinking in that we were not just at home for like two or three months, that it was going to be a little bit of a longer haul. And I'm not going to say that I was, like, excited about, you know, that (laughs) prospect. It was, you know, the first of the true holiday weekends where, under normal circumstances, I would have traveled somewhere fun to be with my friends or family, and I was sitting in my house instead. That said, I was looking forward to having a few days off of Zoom, right? No Zoom fatigue, an opportunity to maybe rest and recuperate a bit. And so I went into the weekend a little bit hopeful. Now, what many don't know is a few weeks prior to that, our then head of diversity and inclusion had actually 
identified a new opportunity within Fidelity that she was going to pursue, which was a great, you know, mobility opportunity for her and an opportunity for her to put diversity and inclusion into practice in a role in a part of our organization, in the sales organization, where there had not been a female leader before. So I had gotten a call just before the Memorial Day weekend that was asking me to kind of think about whether this was something I would want to do. But I was happy in the job that I was doing. And, you know, I was a bit daunted of like, hmm, I'm not sure I want to lead diversity and inclusion. I'm proud of the business career that I've had and delivering on business results. So I asked for the benefit of the Memorial Day weekend to think about the opportunity. And then on Monday night, I was being bombarded with images of George Floyd's murder. Mm-hmm. And to be candid, neither of those events made me want to do the job. <laughs> they actually really made me want to think about doing something different or staying in the role that I was in. They were quite discouraging. But I think in the next week, I saw a very different reaction and response, not only within Fidelity, but across the broader you know, world community. Mm-hmm. And I felt hope. I felt like this time felt a little bit different. And not only that, I really felt that the universe was presenting me with an opportunity to be a part of that change that seemed to be taking shape. And so I really did reflect on it. I had conversations over the remaining weeks with my family and others. And I still would describe myself as a reluctant (laughs) head of diversity and inclusion, just given some of the things that I just told you about where I was and how I felt Mm -hmm. after the Memorial Day weekend. But I felt that, you know, after 23 years at the time at this company, a company that I love and a culture that I really enjoy and have thrived in, that the opportunity to give back and to help us be better positioned for the future was one that I could not pass up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've often believed in the power of systemic change from within. And it sounds like that's a part of the perspective that you're sharing. When you look back longer term, who has had the greatest influence on you in your career? You know, I feel very much am anchored by my personal upbringing. And, you know, I do think that in terms of the greatest influence on, you know, me and my career, it really would be my parents and each for different reasons. Both of my parents had humble beginnings. But my mother, you know, grew up in a time where investment in girls and girls' education wasn't always a priority. And my mother was the eldest. And so as her mother continued to have children and quite a few of them and needed help raising those children, eventually my mother was taken out of school. And so my mother didn't actually go to high school. My mother is originally from Barbados. And so there was an opportunity presented to her to go to England, like many young women from the Caribbean, and study nursing. And I often think about, you know, and especially as someone who also migrated to another country, the circumstances under which I left Trinidad to go to Canada and the circumstances under which my mother left Barbados to get on a ship, not knowing where she was going, (laughs) not having a formal high school education, they're so significantly different. And I, every day still, just am in awe 
of what it would take to really bet on yourself in that way and to be up to that sort of challenge and to make a life for yourself coming from that sort of beginning. And so I think I have always framed every opportunity that is in front of me. I am grateful for it because I know that it doesn't come easily. It's been given to me given the sacrifices that my family members have made. And just, you know, knowing that I owe it to them to make the most of every situation because my situation does not compare <laughs> in terms of uh, just some of the hardships that they countered, right? It's not to suggest that my journey has been perfect or simple, but I just always kind of keep their experience in mind. You know, my father was an accountant, right? So although he was also very good linguistically, he was also really good at math. And I think, you know, with him, what I learned was just about work ethic and also responsibility to others. In roles that he had, he was responsible for housing for many people. And he passed away about three years ago. And I still run into people who, when we talk about my father, they will say, you know, he gave us our first home. And as you know, for many people in many communities, Owning a home is the first step to independence mm -hmm. and to really kind of building potentially generational wealth and well-being. And so I just kind of anchor on those two examples in my life for how I go about my career. Well, thank you for sharing that with me. It's amazing what past generations went through to get us to where we are today. You know, what I've learned about you and what I've heard from others is that you're very passionate about elevating diverse perspectives to create the best outcomes, which carries with it that same responsibility you were talking about with your dad. I mean, you know, when you look at the financial sector, what perspectives do you see as missing? You know, the financial sector has been really interesting, and especially in, you know, in the United States, I think, historically, it has been heavily represented by white male leadership for many, many, many decades. And so, you know, what that says to me and to others is that as the demographics of the populations that we serve and the clients that we engage with have been changing over time, we have not kept pace with that change. And that means that, you know, there potentially are gaps in our offerings and the products and services that we're delivering, you know, that we need to do better on. And so I think the financial services industry has some extra work to do to close those gaps in terms of what our companies look like and who we serve, as well as the products and the offerings that we're providing. In order to create those sort of more relevant and differentiated experiences, the firms need to have perspectives from a broad and varied group of people. And so those diverse perspectives come by having diverse people on our teams, and it can impact everything from, you know, our best practices and how we communicate and engage with our clients to the design of the products and services that we offer. And so all of us need to do more to build diverse workforces and create environments for the customers, you know, with their specific needs in mind. I, I think it's clear to say that the solutions that we've offered in the past won't work for the future. You know, people continue to change and their needs morph, and we just need to be reflective of those same individuals that we serve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I recently attended a Fidelity online offering called Women in Money, which I thought was great. Yes. I had never seen anything like that before from any company, and so it was great to see that and to be a part of it. Thank you for offering that. How can managers work to elevate diverse perspectives? 
Well, with infidelity, many have heard me kind of say this, which is just, you know, as you grow in your career and you take on more senior roles, with that comes greater responsibility. And, you know, I think what we try to do at Fidelity is we ask managers to really role model, you know, a path forward to be active sponsors and mentors for employees, and in particular, to engage with employees that are different from themselves. You know, it is sort of human nature to gravitate towards people who are like us, but we actually really encourage people to intentionally and deliberately spend time and invest in others who are different from them. We have developed a learning curriculum for our managers and people leaders, you know, that's focused on skill building, not just in terms of, you know, topics like conscious inclusion and appreciating cultural differences or gender and disability etiquette, but we also want them to really be able to manage diverse teams and to demonstrate inclusive leadership behaviors. And we view it as a skill set, right? It's part of the toolkit of being a manager to build competency in all of these areas. We do evaluate our curriculum. We get a lot of feedback from our managers who participate, and we do make changes as needs evolve over time. And I think last but certainly not least is you do have to have some accountability measures for managers and senior leaders around things potentially like, you know, diversity in hiring. Who are you actually interviewing for positions that are open on your teams? Are you looking at a diverse candidate slate? And then also, as you're going through that interview process, you know, are you doing it in an inclusive way? Are you making sure that the interview focuses on the actual skill set required to do the job Mm -hmm. and not some of the other sort of more subjective things? Like, how will they fit into the team? I think we have really tried to pivot to who might be a culture add to our team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, are there specific policies or practices that every organization should examine? Yeah, absolutely. I think the biggest piece and a fundamental underpinning of our overall diversity and inclusion efforts is that every single person has a part to play right, in building the culture of the organization, regardless of title, business function, or level. And so every one of us has a part to play in our diversity and inclusion efforts. As I mentioned before, we're taking a behaviors-based approach to progress that's grounded in research from James Clear about how to build atomic habits, right? How do habits actually form? You know, they form by making small changes repeatedly over time that have a long-lasting impact. We ask all associates to identify areas where they can make a difference. And then we ask them to integrate those inclusive behaviors into business practices and procedures that they're doing so that they become more commonplace. And we're not asking for some sort of overnight revolutionary change. We're saying, you know, identify one or two things that you can work on and then build upon those. Mm Mm-hmm. It feels like a very manageable approach for individuals to adopt as well. It's not trying to go overnight change. Right. I mean, we really want to meet people where they are. Mm -hmm. Um, Everyone is not starting from the same point, right? Mm -hmm. And some of us have a lived experience, which makes us more familiar with, you know, diversity and inclusion. Others only recently became aware 
that sometimes our differences get in the way. And so we wanted to make it easy for everyone to have, you know, easy entry into the work that we're doing and to see themselves being a part of the solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now you mentioned the approach that's being taken organizationally. What are specific actions that you see employees taking to cultivate inclusion and diversity in their own work? Yeah, I think the first thing we kind of challenge our associates to do is to expand the frame through which they see the world, right? Think about how diverse your actual world is, you know, the interactions that you're having. You know, I would argue that if in a week, or even if you broke it down into a day, if everybody you interacted with completely agreed with everything you said, (laughs) I'm going to say that maybe your world is not as diverse as you might think. You want to be actively seeking out others who are different from you and who maybe bring a different perspective. We encourage folks to bring their intellectual curiosity right to their engagement with others. What do I mean by that? It means that like you're actually interested and curious about, you know, what someone thinks and what their experience is and how they are interpreting the same set of facts or experience that you might be having and coming to a different outcome, right? And mm-hmm. that shows up in terms of active listening, where you're listening to understand, not listening to, you know, debate or refute. So we really are trying to get folks to think about that and not shut down when they hear a different perspective. I think, unfortunately, we've gotten to a place in the world where everyone's sort of in their corners, and we want people to be willing to kind of meet somewhere in the middle, potentially. Mm -hmm. You know, I think last but not least is we want folks to practice empathy, or at least be understanding that everyone is not experiencing the world and our workplace in the same way. And, you know, I think this can be a little bit tough, particularly for those who really enjoy the workplace or have been having a really good time. They sometimes feel like when others express a differing opinion, they're criticizing. I don't think that's what it is at all. They're just sharing that, you know, they might not be having the same experience that you are, right? You know, always be learning, right? That's kind of part of the curiosity as well. But you know, whether it's through experiences or research, we just want everyone to have and exhibit a growth mindset at Fidelity. The last few things I'd just say is a lot of people have wanted to be allies, and we just encourage that allyship is an action word, right? And so put allyship into action every day. Bring others into the rooms that you are in and let them sit at the table with you, right? Don't just put them in the room and they have no voice. Encourage them to participate fully create that space for others' voices to be heard and then listen to understand. I think the virtual environment has allowed us to be able to add our pronouns to our names. We support individuals doing that as a demonstration to others that you're in solidarity with them. And that way it makes it easier for someone who maybe identifies in a way different than others might think based Mm -hmm. on their visual representation. It gives them permission to do that. And then they don't have to keep explaining it in every session, right? Because it's there on the screen. Mm -hmm. And then I, I would just say, you know, don't stop with any list of suggestions that I'm making. Just keep at it, right? We really talk about the fact that we're trying to build endurance for this work. And also we're trying to build an inclusion muscle. And like any other muscle that you're building, you got to train, right? You got to exercise. 
and you got to commit to doing it for the long run. Yep. Yeah, and I think another key piece that I've had to learn myself is be patient with yourself. You just got to be oh, patient yeah. and keep trying as the brain is growing. You're so right. Be patient with yourself. Give yourself and others grace, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you assume positive intent, a lot of times, you know, things that are obvious to each of us based on our own experience are not obvious to other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you look back at your accomplishments, what do you point to as being most proud of? I would say, you know, for me, every now and then I have the opportunity and it happens fairly randomly where someone will send me a note. This happened a few years ago. I got a note from an individual that I managed really early in my career. It actually was the first direct report of mine who was LGBTQ+. And we were all young, right? So we were all in our 20s. And it wasn't the environment that it is today where more people are out. And Mm -hmm. the note that he sent me was just about how much of an impact I had had on him. And that even now, like 15 plus years later, I still stood out to him as one of the managers that really, you know, accepted him as he was, was supportive of him as he was going through a real period of conflict because he was grappling with his identity and wanting to really be authentically himself. And that I gave him the grace to do that in a way that others had not and really set him on a path that allowed him to thrive. And I get a couple of those different emails every now and then. I also get to look across Fidelity periodically and see folks that I've either mentored or coached or managed getting showcased and spotlights in different ways. And it just makes me feel really good about that investment in others and seeing them really thriving. And to be candid, a a lot of this those situations that I'm talking about, you know, there is an attribution involved, right? It's not public accolades, but for me, it's deeply personal and highly impactful to see and know that the interactions with me were so meaningful to them and that they are on a successful path. Yeah. When you think back to when you were starting your career, what is one thing you wish you knew that you could share with listeners? I wish I knew when I was starting my career that I didn't have to take it and myself as seriously. (laughs) And what I mean by that is, you know, I think sometimes, gosh, you just, you know, you want to do a great job and you have these mental models in your mind about like what a career path should look like. And when it doesn't happen exactly the way that you think it should, which generally a lot of people think it's sort of a very linear ascent, right? And in reality, it's not. It's a zigzag Mm -hmm. (laughs) sometimes. And I just wish that I had known that one, it'll be okay, right? And that failures along the way actually are about skill set building, or as my mother would always say, it's a character building experience, Wendy, right? That you want to fail early. And you want to fail often, right? I would definitely tell you that I was probably very guilty of not failing early enough. And the trick with that is if you wait until later, generally later, you're in a much more important, visible role. And then the failure can feel much more daunting. So I think what people miss and just what I wish I knew is early failure and overcoming failure early actually builds 
right? That resiliency and that skill set that sets you on a path for success. I think too early for me in my career, I was still in my perfectionist mode. <laughs> and uh, I now joke about, and I'm proud to say, I'm a perfectionist in reform. <laughs> That's great. Uh, you know, now, throughout the pandemic, you know, one of the things a lot of people have pointed out in the news and just in personal lives is the amount of anxiety we've all faced and stress um, with the constantly, continually changing dynamic. Do you have strategies that you could share around your own self-care and stress reduction? Absolutely. I would say, you know, I've always had strategies around self-care and stress reduction, you know, even pre-pandemic, but many of those strategies I couldn't indulge in, whether it was travel, right, or I have a, perhaps because of growing up in the Caribbean, being near the ocean or at a beach gives me just a great sort of feeling of connection with the earth and just rejuvenates me in a way. And I wasn't doing that because I wasn't traveling. I was social distancing and isolating, right? I couldn't do the massages and things like that, the spa visits that I normally would do. But I did realize that there were certain things that had become part of like even those processes that I could replicate. So, you know, as someone who was a road warrior and on flights all the time, on flights and on planes, I always traveled with like aromatherapy oils, right? And I probably went for the first month and work from home without any of that. But then I was like, oh, wait a second, I have a diffuser <laughs> and I can buy those oils. And so even while I'm talking to you now, I have a diffuser going. It might be peppermint today, but I change up those oils and just create an environment, right? Sometimes it's the subtle things. I have really renewed my practice around meditation and mindfulness to really kind of just find time amidst some of the chaos and some of the disruption and sometimes the despair to just make sure to reconnect with me and how I'm feeling and what am I needing in that moment. Because sometimes when you're either raised the way I was, but also in the role that I have as the head of diversity and inclusion, you're always thinking about other people and sometimes you forget yourself in the shuffle. And so I think that's super critical. And then the last thing I will just say is just sort of the maintaining and enforcement and establishment of boundaries. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely would have been someone in the past, and because I'm really passionate about the work, I would have let it bleed into my weekends and things like that very easily. But I recognized early that I needed time for me. And in particular, when you're focused on diversity and inclusion, and in the last 18 months that we've lived in, DNI is showing up even in our personal lives and in mm -hmm. the broader community. And you can't escape it, right? And so you have to give yourself space. And so my escapism, just being really candid, right, involves things like Netflix <laughs> uh -huh. and other things and not watching really heavy content, like actually watching things that will make me laugh, that will distract me a bit, right? Because you need that time away from it. The problems of the world are not going away overnight. And so back to that endurance, you need to be building the endurance over time. And so, you know, those are some of the things. And, and then obviously connecting with friends and family. I have a weekly family Zoom call every Sunday that I think is a nice way to break up that Sunday doldrums that many of us have where you're like already starting to anticipate the work week. 
well, I end my Sunday evening with my family and I actually feel really encouraged and ready to start the work week. Now, all of us are continuing to find ways to distract ourselves from reality. Do you have any Netflix <laughs> yeah. shows that you recommend? Oh, my. There's so many. Um, <laughs> I know I said not to look at heavy content, but I am a fan of, and I'm not bringing it up just because I'm talking to you all, but I am a fan of the Ozarks, right? And I do watch a number of other kind of really sappy, funny um, shows. But I kind of pick different movies. There's so much content to be honest, that's mm -hmm. being delivered, that it's quite fun to watch a few of those. And I am like one of the group that is anxiously awaiting the final season of Peaky Blinders. And I feel like they're teasing us for <laughs> a long time with that. <laughs> so, Yeah, I feel like they do that with many shows nowadays uh, to keep us on the hook. I so appreciate your time. I just wanted to follow up with one question just in case there was something that I didn't ask. Is there anything that I should have asked as a part of this interview that I didn't? You know, I wouldn't say anything that you should have asked, but I think if I had to like end on a one note, you know, for all of the listeners, it's really just, I think so often we feel powerless, right, to make change, especially when it feels like change on a big scale. And we all have the ability to make change. And I think if we all try to be that change in the environments that we're in, Think about how powerful collectively, you know, that overall change could be. And so I just encourage everyone, right? Like, you know, don't just sit on the sidelines, participate in this life that we're all living together. And don't forget that it is actually about a collective existence, right? We're not in this alone. And so that really is just what I would share with everyone. We need everybody to be helping our world to be more inclusive and to help us to understand each other's perspectives. And so I just want to leave people on a hopeful note and also, you know, with a to-do, which is think about when was the last time you had a conversation with someone who had a completely different perspective than you or a totally different life experience. And if you haven't had one in the last week, plan to have one in the next. I love that challenge. Thank you so much for taking time to share your experiences with us as well as your perspective. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW+, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse, welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW+, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the three fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi. Thank you.